your trusted source for news and analysis about Chicago White Sox prospects and player development, covering the Major League Baseball draft and international market, plus the action in Kannapolis, Winston-Salem, Birmingham, and Charlotte. This is the Future Sox Podcast with your hosts, Mike Rankin and James Fox. Welcome to another episode of the Future Sox Podcast. Happy 4th of July. Hope everybody enjoyed their holiday and safe and continuing to enjoy White Sox baseball, whatever level that is. My name is Mike Rankin. I'm your host, James Fox, alongside us. Today's special episode and guest includes Josh Nelson of Sox Machine. No more introductions need to be made there as Josh, uh, a partner with us and Jim Margulis, among others, at SoxMachine.com. You can search SoxMachine.com and become a patron if you're willing. It really does help us do what we do every single day, 365 days a year. Josh is celebrating a marriage, so he will not be around for the live draft show that he typically does uh, annually. So that'll be on myself and James Fox. So we're looking forward to that on July 9th. We hope that you can join us. We'll be right here on, it looks probably StreamYard. I think that's the best option. Josh, have you done live shows on StreamYard? You can give uh, probably a better assessment of the platform than I can. Yeah, all the time. All the time. So, yeah, that would be a good direction if that's the way that you guys want to go because they'll put it out on Twitter. They'll put it out on YouTube, Twitch even. Wherever you want it, StreamYard will push it out. And we see that you're part of the watch parties with the 108 crew on occasion. So, Anytime that pops up, we encourage you to join the simulcast. So that's a lot of fun to be a part of. Josh, thanks for taking the time to join us today. We have bigly questions for you, as well as your opinion of the draft. We wanted to get your thoughts out on the record before the draft does take place. And White Sox selected pick number 15. So we can go any which way here regarding big league stuff and draft stuff. Because I I think this is a unique time in White Sox history. As Mike Shirley is going into his fourth draft and... The White Sox are clearly about to, in my opinion, pick a lane in terms of their commitment level to competing in 2023. And I think the decisions made now and in this offseason are going to be significant moving into the 2024 and 2025 years because, Josh, I don't know about you, but I don't feel like this team needs to go through a massive or significant rebuild. However, the roster does need to be shuffled up. Mm-hmm. And with the way that the infrastructure is looking within the minor leagues, I feel like this team can kind of bounce back in two years. Now, that's two years, though, Josh, and that's just my opinion. This has been a disappointment um, in terms of the window to compete following the rebuild that really did start in 2016. Where are you at with this club and, and how do you foresee things going forward? Well, I think going forward, the biggest unknown is money. Specifically, what kind of revenue those Chicago White Sox are generating. It's been passed along on social media and other articles and publications that cover Major League Baseball from a revenue standpoint that the Chicago White Sox are seeing by far and away the largest decline in fan attendance in 2023. And in the past five years, we didn't think it was that big of a deal with fan attendance just because of how massive these local television contracts had become across Major League Baseball, that teams were making way more money from the television contracts with the regional sports networks than they were with fans coming into the game. That's not going to be the case. And as we have seen, even in this season, and we're probably going to see in 2024, 
Gate revenue is going to be absolutely huge. I mean, the San Diego Padres have already lost their RSN. Sounds like the Arizona Diamondbacks, despite being in first place in the National League West and one of the best and, uh, I guess, unlikely stories in Major League Baseball and how they are somewhat running away in the National League West to win this division, despite on how strong the San Diego Padres and Los Angeles Dodgers are, they might be losing the regional sports network in the middle of this epic run that they're currently on. So I think the biggest unknown factor is how are the White Sox generating revenue? How much are they going to generate that revenue and how much are they going to either hold on for a rainy day, not knowing what is to come in 2025 and beyond when it comes to the television contract, because the White Sox TV contract expires in October of 2024 And if they don't have a real solid footing on what the short term is on the revenue side, that's going to greatly impact if they want to reshuffle this roster but still compete and signing free agents or making trades with players and other teams to inherit larger contracts to add to a player payroll in which we've seen the last two years be the highest in Chicago White Sox history. There's so much unknown in the near future for the Chicago White Sox that I think it adds into the worry of White Sox fans overall, Mike, because this season is going downhill pretty fast on the team. And a lot of White Sox fans are losing interest. And the biggest question is, should I even pay attention to next year? Uh, Is this going to get better in 2024? And I can't honestly say in either direction at this moment, but if I had to guess, it might get worse if the White Sox are concerned about future revenue and it, where that type of revenue source is coming from and where the money is coming from. And maybe they're going to have to cut down their pay or player payroll. And that re- will require even more difficult decisions in the offseason for the White Sox roster. Josh, one of the, the biggest things that I guess I've just kind of been surprised about is just how terrible this offense is. I think we, you know, we knew some of the shortcomings coming into the season. We knew they weren't going to walk a ton. I just, you know obviously wasn't expecting a bottom five offense in baseball. So I guess like my question for you is just, you know, the disconnect somewhere, like, can you speak to it Mm -hmm. at all? Because there, I think, you know, we, we kind of talked about the Braves model with Castro coming in and the links with, you know, a lot of coaches, I think they were trying to do some similar things. And, you know, we heard about plate patients and they're, you know, using stuff that they think is new tech that really isn't new tech. Right. But there's just, it just seems like for a long time, the organization is focused on swinging at their pitches and being aggressive. And you never hear anything about not swinging being a priority ever. And I just, it, it's just weird. I think you got a lot of guys in between and the offense just doesn't work. What are your thoughts on it in general? I, I, you bring up a lot of good points, James. And I think the difference between the Atlanta model, the Los Angeles Dodgers model, the Houston Astros model, maybe not so much this season, the Tampa Bay Rays model is that's a top-down approach. Like, all of the initiatives are coming from the baseball operations team in the front office. And the think tanks that these teams have either built are coming from the president of baseball ops and it's being sent down all the way. So with this top-down approach, I think that's where you could build consistency throughout all of your minor league development. And that type of consistency, when it reaches to the major leagues, that the front office has a good relationship with the coaching staff to continue this thought process. I I liken it to like a hive mind, James, in which everyone, no matter what level 
of competition that your organization is part of understands the process, understands what the organization is looking for. And the organization has done a very good job conveying why this is important and proving the type of success that these players can have following these methods. That's not happening with the White Sox. And what I'm fearing here is actually happening is the disconnect is that in the farm system, which you guys are very knowledgeable about, you have hitting instructors like Andy Barquette. You got pitching instructors. You got Chris Getz running that show. But as soon as they get to Chicago, that's like they're getting passed on to a whole different team. And I don't know if that, if that group of coaches and managers may necessarily agree with the way that things are being developed in the minor leagues. And so to your point, that's why I think there's a disconnect where you hear things like Andrew Vaughn and Jake Berger and Gavin Sheets are trying to use iPitch more and then nobody else is using it. Uh, now you're hearing he's been on a tear, but Luis Robert Jr. through the television broadcast at NBC Sports Chicago from Gordon Beckham speaking to Jose Castro that Castro has mentioned that Robert Jr. is now asking more questions about being prepared. And that's music to my ears because there are some times in which if, if Roberts get, gets cold, the reason why Luis Robert gets cold is that he just doesn't seem to understand and how pitchers are attacking him or what's coming at him. And I think that's just a lack of pregame preparation. It's just, it's kind of messy for the White Sox. There's not a clear model that they are following. There's not clear direction coming down from the front office. And then, Everybody asks this question, well, who's in charge of the White Sox? Who should be leading that direction? And it's really unknown when it comes to the White Sox. So I think that's something that they have to address in the offseason. But we thought this was addressed during the rebuild. And here we are in 2023, and there just seems to be more confusion here. Because you can see that some of the process is working, especially if you pay attention to how guys are being developed at Canapolis, to Winston-Salem, to Birmingham, but man, as soon as they get to Chicago, it's like they suddenly forget to hit. It's like whatever was working for them in the minors is not going to work in the majors, and then now they're trying to make adjustments right away. For whatever reason, they cannot continue this momentum or the confidence that they have gained in the minor leagues to the major leagues, and I think that is a huge problem for the White Sox, not just in the now, James, but also in the near future. So, you know, something I've wondered, and you know, I think you agree. Like I, this team needs a president of baseball operations and obviously, yes. you know, preferably, you know, an up and comer from one of these good orgs that you mentioned. But I mean, like with how deep the infrastructure problems go, just like, is would that guy even be allowed to do whatever he wants is like always my fear, right? Like how behind are the White Sox still? Like I, I kind of equate them with the Rockies and Royals as like, you know, the bottom three organizations in baseball. And you can lump Oakland in if you want, but they still have Billy Bean there. So I just, it's just, yeah, I, I just think there's cost cutting measures and just stuff that happens all over the place. And it really, you know, it makes it kind of tough to know who to, to blame, kind of like what you said. And to your point, James, I agree. Like the White Sox really could use a baseball of a uh, president of baseball operations. And I think to get to that point, you need a, either a new chairperson or a new owner of the Chicago White Sox. And that person hires their president of baseball ops. And both parties agree 
that they signed this president of baseball ops to a five-year contract because it may take five years to completely gut, renovate everything that's going on in the baseball ops for the Chicago White Sox. And within that five-year window, you're hoping at the very end of it that you're seeing some results on the field in the major league ball club level. Now, White Sox fans don't want to hear this because now they're hearing, oh my gosh, a five-year rebuild. We just went through... You know, we went through 2017, 2018, 2019. That was that was brutal. Uh, and, you know, we saw some success in, in 2020. But, you know, to James's point, if you hire a baseball, a president of baseball operations, they may just want to renovate everything within the Chicago White Sox organization. Where the White Sox are to the other franchises. I mean, their front office is small. And there was a quote recently about... and. and it sounds like the commissioner's office was already talking to the owners and there's been some arguing in the club in the, in the country club uh, between major league baseball owners regarding staff sizes that some owners can't believe on how large the analytics team has gotten or how large the baseball ops team has gotten or looking at other baseball teams, just how large their staff is while they're keeping things to a minimum. The White Sox are one of those teams that are keeping it to a minimum. I mean, for the Los Angeles Dodgers, they got a president, they got vice presidents, they got senior directors, they got directors, and they got managers. Like, it is a full corporate tree the Los Angeles Dodgers have for baseball ops. The White Sox don't have that. And Pedro Grafal kind of pulled back the curtain when he got hired saying that the White Sox front office is small. Like, it it was pretty easy as far as the interview process. I just talked to Rick Hahn, and then I talked to Chris Getz and Jeremy Haber, and then I talked to Kenny and Jerry. And that's the extent of the White Sox front office, it seems, from the outside. Man, you don't have enough people. You don't have enough eyes to not only cover what's happening in Chicago or down in the minor leagues, but you don't have enough eyes to look around what's also happening on the major league baseball front. Like that's why the Dodgers have so many people and they have so many teams in their baseball ops, because they're not just paying attention to what they are doing or how their farm system is doing. They are paying attention to how everyone is doing. And I always joke that a franchise like the Los Angeles Dodgers may know the White Sox farm system better than the White Sox know their own farm system because of those dedicated resources. This is something that Jerry Reinsdorf does not believe in, shocker, and having a very large baseball ops staff, even though the White Sox are continuing to add new types of people to the baseball front office, that is where they are still behind James. And again, this doesn't require a new president of baseball ops, so that new president of baseball ops would probably come with the new owner or chairperson, and those two people, the owner, chairperson, the president of baseball ops, are going to have to come to an agreement and how this new front office structure is going to work. There's no I in team, but there is one in Indeed, and that's the hiring platform that you need to build yours. When you're hiring, you need Indeed. Instead of spending hours on multiple job sites searching for candidates with the right skills, Indeed's a powerful hiring platform that can help you do it all. One of the things I love about Indeed is that it makes hiring all in one place so easy because Indeed does the hard work for you. They show you the candidates whose resumes on Indeed fit your description immediately after you post so you can hire faster. Join more than 3 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great 
talent fast. Start hiring now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at indeed.com slash blue wire sports offer good for a limited time. Claim your $75 credit now at indeed.com slash blue wire sports. That's indeed.com slash blue wire sports and support the show by saying that you heard it on this podcast. Indeed.com slash blue wire sports terms and conditions apply need to hire you need indeed. You know, the way you frame that is very thought-provoking because, you know, you think of the way that the front office is set up and the delineation of responsibilities among those that you mentioned, and it brings me to the way the minor league systems are run. And we brought up Andy Barquette, who was installed as a hitting coordinator three years ago, as well as Everett Tfrut, who's been around. Matt Zaleski's mm-hmm. a traveling pitching coach. And we're thinking about the way that they go about developing internal prospects. And I want to provided an instance here that caught our attention because we got a mention on, on Twitter and we appreciate everybody who reaches out to us regarding those within the organization, you know, giving us updates and what have you. And this is an update from a family member of Tristan Stevers, who's, and I don't you know have any issue bringing up the name directly because you can find it on our Twitter. Tristan Stevers is a 24 year old right-handed pitcher He's currently competing in Winston-Salem, and he was drafted in 2022. He's got just over 23 innings so far in advanced A. And we got a question from Stever's family member asking, what should we look forward to as the family of Tristan Stever's rooting for him to make his major league debut at some point? Here's the quote. He is doing well, but just has questions. They tell him he will move fast through the system. No movement yet. We're just curious. And they're looking for updates on Tristan Stevers. Now, that gave me kind of the inclination that the White Sox are keeping things close to the chest. I don't know where these players are getting the information from in terms of their timeline or possibly a potential call-up. And this is from level to level. And then I started thinking about Oscar Colas's frustration last year mm-hmm. and how he made it apparent on social media that he was frustrated. And the way it took, you know, Jacob Burke and Tim Elko and Terrell Tatum a little bit of time to get promoted when, to the naked eye, it seemed like they were ready, but again, we're not there. I mean, I'm just spitball. I'm thinking out loud, and it's obviously got a negative connotation to it, Josh, but it just, I just wonder what your theory is there regarding managing communication within the infrastructure from coaches to players to upper management. Well, I think when it comes to promoting, I am seeing unique trends across Major League Baseball, specifically like paid attention to on how aggressive suddenly Pittsburgh, Baltimore, and Cincinnati have been with their promotions. And for the White Sox, they are seemingly dragging. Does that make sense to you guys? Like perfect examples, Tim Elko. Man, Tim Elko should have been with Winston-Salem in April. Like it was pretty clear from the get-go he was too good for A-ball. I mean, he is on the older side. He helped Ole Miss win a national championship as they won the College World Series last year. And the dude was smoking everything at the plate. And I get that evidently the White Sox have someone at first base at Wits at Salem that was blocking him and whatever. And DJ Gladney had been hitting really well at Wits at Salem. Nobody's hitting in Birmingham. So if DJ Gladney's ready to go... Send him to Birmingham and move up Elko. Like, what are we doing wasting time here? And that's just kind of how it felt when it came to Tim Elko. And I'm happy that he finally got called up. And, and Jacob Burke as well to, to Winston-Salem that 
the the White Sox must be like they're. I wonder, and this is speculation. Next time anyone talks to Chris Getz, I think this is a a good question to ask. What goes into the White Sox promoting a prospect? Like, what's the thinking? What's some of the decision-making? I ask this because I've noticed in some of the baseball coaching conventions that are going on and a lot of the baseball instruction type of facilities or even personal coaches, the idea of KPIs. Now, KPIs is a very corporate term. (laughs) For anyone that works at a corporation, you know what KPIs are. If you don't know what KPIs are, they're pretty much goals that you set out for a fiscal year or for a quarter, but they're very specific on what you are trying to accomplish. And it seems like in baseball, that for some organizations, they are developing individual KPIs for their prospects. And that is why I'm wondering in Cincinnati, Pittsburgh, and Baltimore, they've been so aggressive with their their promotions lately because these prospects, Mike, must be hitting their KPIs. Now, I don't know of all the teams in Major League Baseball that are using KPIs, but it would be like for a month, have a walk rate of 10 plus percent. Check. Uh, have an average exit velocity at balls in play of 90 plus miles per hour. Check. Uh, it, it's very, those very specific things. Like it, it's nothing like hit 300. It, it's not like that. It's, it, it's things that track man can, or Hawkeye, depending on the baseball facility and the organization can specifically track to know how much better you are getting on the field. And it's not really dependent on results per se when it comes to the slash line. It's it's really dependent on the stat cast data that is being compiled down in the minor leagues. So that's why I think Chris Getz needs to be asked that question because if Getz, who I don't think is going to be like an open book on this, Mike, but if Getz answers more about time, that we want to make sure that guys spend X amount of time Well, that's why some promotions may feel slow for the White Sox compared to other organizations where they're going to be more KPI-based. They're going to be more performance-based on how they're doing in-game through StatCast data. And I don't know which system is right yet, but you can't, can't argue the results of what Cincinnati is getting or even Pittsburgh this year. They're surprising. Uh, Or even Baltimore now calling up their top prospects. Uh, it's definitely something to pay attention to in the upcoming years. Yeah, I think that's very well explained. And, and that leads me to my next question, because I'm wondering about 2024. I can't help it. I'm looking past 2023 already, which means the deadline plus off season's upcoming. And I'm thinking of the way it, that they're you know, managing their prospects in the farm system and the timeline it's taking for them to get promoted to the next level. Cause I think in 2025, as I sort of alluded to earlier is a commitment to internal options. And I'm just wondering, Josh, what your opinion is of what could be happening moving forward ahead of the deadline and in front of uh, during the off season, if we're looking that far ahead, I guess in the immediate sense, the deadline is more pertinent because if you're going to invest internally, what are some of the moves that you believe the White Sox should make that would make them better in the short and long term? 
So when it comes to the trade deadline, I think three pitchers in particular are going to be receiving a lot of phone calls from other teams to the Chicago White Sox. That's Lucas Giolito, that's Joe Kelly, and Kendall Graveman. And we know that teams are always looking, especially contending teams, to boost the bullpen. That's why I think Joe Kelly and Kendall Graveman are going to get phone calls. Uh, Both of these guys, not only are they veterans, but they've had success in the postseason. And they're very familiar pitching in those very high leverage, the season is on the line type of situations. So that's why I think Rickard's going to get calls about Joe Kelly and Kendall Graveman. Lucas Giolito's contract expires after, after this season. And if you hold on to him, then you give him a qualifying offer, maybe. Uh, we'll see if they learn from the Carlos Rodon experience. If he declines the qualified offer, you're probably getting a comp pick in the second round uh, when Lucas Giolito signs elsewhere, which, yeah, helps add more money to your draft pool in 2024, but that only gives you one guy. There are so many teams right now in contention that could really use help on the starting pitching front because of injuries that I think you could get two or two to three prospects for Lucas Giolito. Like if you have the scouting team and if you're a GM that's, that's worth your salary, I think you should be able to get at least one interesting double a prospect to add to your farm system for Lucas Giolito and a couple of lottery tickets uh, to go along with them. Because again, this is just a half season rental, but because of supply and demand, there's not a lot of supply when it comes to quality starting pitching at the trade deadline, but the demand is pretty large uh, in major league baseball. So that's why I think the white Sox may surprise and get more of an interesting haul for Lucas Giolito than expected. But once let's say I'm right, let's say those three guys get moved. It's going to be, a turnstile as far as from Charlotte to Chicago and who picks up those innings from Joe Kelly and Kendall Grayman. You're hoping that Liam Hendricks can throw again this season, but we're not exactly sure yet. Uh, Garrett Crochet is on the injured list with shoulder inflammation. That is not good news. I don't think the White Sox have anyone to replace the innings for Lucas Giolito. Like maybe Tuki Tuasant, but he's now trying to pick up the slack with Mike Clevenger hurt and Michael Kopech having a difficult time getting through five innings right now, that's where, like, if Sean Burke were healthy, Mike, and pitching well in Charlotte, like, maybe you see Sean Burke. Or if Christian Mena didn't have an ERA that was above five with Birmingham, maybe you see someone like Christian Mena get some starts in August and September, get an audition to see if he could help out the White Sox in 2024. Because the starting pitching is a focus in 2024 because there's only two pitchers that have guaranteed contracts for the White Sox right now that will be part of their starting rotation. Dylan Cease and Michael Kopak. Lucas Giolito, impending free agent. Mike Clevenger, that's a mutual option. The White Sox have a club option. Clevenger has a player option. Both sides would have to agree to accept that option for him to come back. And Lance Lynn has an $18 million contract. Uh, option for next year or the White Sox could buy him out for a measly $1 million. And at this moment, they're going to be buying out Lance Lynn. So the White Sox have to find three starting pitchers for the 2024 uh, season. And thanks to Jeff Cohen's wonderful reporting down in Charlotte, the Knights don't have enough starting pitchers now to get through a week. Like they don't have five starting pitchers for the Charlotte Knights. So 
this is a very long-winded way of saying when it comes to the type of depth for the White Sox, and, and to your point, looking ahead, Mike, on what do the White Sox need to focus on in 2024, I think it's the starting pitching. Like, there's so many red flags right now going forward that if the White Sox cannot develop any guys internally, well, you're going to free agency and you're signing guys like Jordan Lyles for a proven deal for a year. And you're going to need like three of those types of deals to add to your starting rotation just to feel the team. Like that's how brutally ugly it could get for the White Sox next season on the starting pitching front. Like this is a pretty big concern for me. Before we get into, you know, this year's draft, you know, their last couple first rounders, I think, you know, promising right now. I mean, Montgomery's obviously missed quite a bit of time, but he's playing, looks healthy in the in Arizona. My guess is he goes to Birmingham. So two two for you in one. Like your perceived ETA for Colson Montgomery here, like if he finishes the year in Birmingham and then plays in the AFL after and everything goes well. So how soon, like the timeline for Colson Montgomery. And then Noah Schultz is, I think, just kind of been a bright spot. Your thoughts on uh, how he's mm-hmm. looked in his limited action here at Kannapolis. Yeah, so with Schultz, uh, I'll start with him. That two-seamer has been a wonderful adjustment that the White Sox pitching the roving instructors of the coaching staff down at Kannapolis uh, have been working with Noah Schultz because he's got this slider. And the way that if you haven't seen Noah Schultz on video, the the, the way that this guy pitches, like if you're a right-handed hitter, the ball seems like it's coming from first base. It's really difficult to pick up the release point for Noah Schultz. And that's what makes his slider so devastating. But now he's got this two seam fastball kind of getting away from his four seam fastball. And that's really sneaking up on right handed hitters, especially inside that he could get inside on them, which is, I, I think pretty key. And we'll see in how he develops a third pitch is like a, an off speed pitch as he moves forward. Lefties don't have a chance. Like left handed hitters don't have a prayer against Noah Schultz. And I think he's going to continue dominating lefties. So it's really all about in his development when you're watching on MILB.TV through your MLB.TV subscription, folks. And, and you're watching O'Shultz. Schultz. It's all about how he's doing against righties and how he's able to locate that two-seam fastball. And if he's able to hit all four quadrants of the strike zone, the White Sox may have something special here. Uh, but it's going to take some time for him to reach the majors. I still think he might be... I mean, he's, what, 19 years old? Like, if he could reach the majors in three years, he'd be 22. That's incredibly young uh, for a pitcher to reach the major leagues. But now we're seeing 20-year-olds reach the major leagues uh, as starting pitchers. So just be mindful as far as the timetable for Noah Schultz. Colson Montgomery has missed, I think, some quality development time. Like, we're talking about almost a, a full half of a season that Montgomery has lost. It's I'm having a tough time putting up an ETA for him, James, like because I just want to be fair to him because he's missed so much time this year that I think 2025 is still a good on target for Colson Montgomery to join the Chicago White Sox, especially if he could hit and produce at double A. Like I could still see him starting at double A in 2024 to get those at bats. And I guess it really just depends on how well he hits in 2024. I mean, if he sets the world on fire, James, maybe you see him the second half of 2024 if the White Sox move on from Tim Anderson at shortstop. Like, 
that that's why I, I'm trying to be fair to him, and I'm I'm trying to put out realistic uh, expectations for White Sox fans and what to expect Colson Montgomery. So I'll say 2025, but I wouldn't put it past him that if he sets the world on fire in 2024, that yeah, at some point you could see him in Chicago. So you know, getting into this draft a little bit, how how does this one? rank for you in regards to ones that I guess you've seriously covered and then, you know, mm. shifting to number one here, I, my opinions totally changed um, in the last six weeks. I think, you know, I think you and I are kind of on the same page right now. What, what do you, what do you think the pirates should do at one? And, and I think it actually might end up going this way too, if you answer the way I think you're gonna. Yeah. So when it comes to the draft class, this is one of the best draft classes that, I've covered the college players are, especially the position player front, outstanding. And if you just take a look at recent history on the types of prospects that get drafted that reach the major leagues and do something in the major leagues, the college players are very much better than the prep players. Now, I have a theory on this, and my theory is major league baseball organizations are not as good is the top college programs in player development of 18 to 20 year olds. I think, especially in the SEC, the SEC schools are far better at developing baseball players from ages 18 to 20 than the major league baseball teams. That's not always the case. Tampa Bay, Atlanta, the Dodgers, you know, the same teams over and over again. I think they have maybe cracked the code on how to develop teenagers well in the minor leagues, uh, especially on the international front. Uh, but I think overall, when you're comparing the two, I think college baseball, especially the SEC, they do a better job of developing players from ages 18 to 20 than the major leaguers and the major league teams do. But major league teams do a very good job, of course, from 21 to 23, which is not a demographic that college programs often have. So I think this is a fantastic class, especially when it comes to college position players. If you're in the first round looking for a bat, you will be able to find one. And I think there's some qual I think there's some quality college starting pitching. It's not that deep in the first round, at least. But I think you could find some quality arms in the second and third round. What's the biggest unknown for me is these prep bats. Like Walker Jenkins and Max Clark could be number one overall picks in any other year, James. And I know you and I have had that conversation and they're probably going to go fourth and fifth in this draft. But after Jenkins and Clark, what do teams have here? And what's fascinating is that with summer showcases, we have more data than ever before when it comes to these prep players in velocity, whether that's exit velocity or pitch velocity uh, on, on the pitcher side. So you're doing a lot of data scouting when it comes to these prep players because you're still worried about the level of competition and what am I actually seeing in game that could be carried over professionally. So it, it's like a whole different type of scouting world when looking at prep players to college players right now, because at least with college players, you can factor in, especially like SEC prospects uh, that, oh, this guy faced Paul Skeens. Let me put in the film and see how they did. <laughs> they probably didn't do very well, but at least you have a, a good example, at least game footage of first round potential against first round potential. 
And I think that helps as far as the confidence and when you're dishing out three plus million dollars in signing bonus to these guys in, in the first round. So I think at least in the first round, we're going to see a lot of college bats. I think I'm curious on how the high school bats are going to go. I'm not crazy about the high school pitching in this particular draft class. So I think it's going to be very heavy in the college front. But then watching the second round, where some of these prep guys who might be ranked in the top 20 or top 30 of these overall draft rankings list go in the second round for overslot bonuses. Like I, I, I foresee that being the trend in this upcoming major league baseball draft. I, I really like that point you made about, you know, college programs developing 18 to 20 year olds better than professional organizations, because I, I just, I get that feeling too. And I, I don't have as much knowledge of the college game as you do, Josh. It's just something that I, I can't explain. It's just a feeling that I get. And I think it has to do with, hitters jumping into professional organizations facing professional pitching and then if they fail there's you know there's such a hurdle that they have to overcome in order to have a successful professional career because it's just different in the professional scene versus having the safety cushion of a three-year uh, opportunity in college right at a high-level university and developing there so I think that's a point well taken on my end and I, I'm thinking and related to that front would you be excited to see the White Sox go prep at 15 again. What do you prefer they do uh, at their pick? So what I think right now, if you're circling names, and we'll be, we've written a lot about this at Sox Machine of Future Sox in the last couple of months. The three names that I'm paying close attention to is TCU third baseman Brendan Taylor, left-handed hitter, Miami third baseman Yohandi Morales, and Arizona outfielder uh, Chase Davis, who... When I pop in the film, and I know I mentioned this in my reports at Sox Machine, it reminds me of Carlos Gonzalez with his batting stance from Colorado. I'm paying close attention to those three because I think they're going to be on the board for the White Sox at pick 15. And the, let's call it draft dope, the intel, the White Sox ran heavy at the Fayetteville Regional during the, the college postseason, which included schools of Arizona, TCU, and, of course, Arkansas. So I'm watching film of those three, just not only for the first round, but maybe in the rounds, second rounds and third rounds to see if we get any clues on who the White Sox could be possibly targeting if that, if that draft dope, if that intel becomes real. As far as the prep players, like you got Colin Hawk. Uh, I think he may go 12 to Arizona. I know there's a lot of people on Aiden Miller. I'm kind of backing away from Aiden Miller at this moment because of the Hammett injury. Like, the White Sox are having a very, very, very difficult time with players suffering that type of injury. As in, like, Jose Rodriguez had that injury, and it took him a little bit to get going. Andrew Benatendi has had that injury, and he's got one home run this year, and now they're finally admitting after 70-plus games, oh, by the way, uh, the hand injury is uh, more impactful than we were letting on at spring training. That at least could have helped with expectations or setting realistic expectations of the biggest free agent signing, if you were at least honest with that. So with Miller, I I'm curious on how the Hammond injury has healed. Um, because if you lose, if with the Hammond injury for everyone listening, my biggest concern is while it heals, you lose a great deal of hand strength. And with that loss of hand strength, while you're playing through or rehabbing through the process, you're going to lose power. 
which is fine because he's so young. And as long as you understand that and you may see, well, there's not a lot of production when he's 19, 20 years old, but watch when he's 21, 22, he sets the world on fire because they have an injury, is finally fully healed, and they have their full hand strength back, and they got their power back. I think overall when it comes to the draft strategy of what I'm expecting the White Sox to do, we haven't seen Mike Shirley take it a college bat yet. As you mentioned, Mike, this is his fourth season as the draft director for the White Sox. He went college pitcher with his first draft at Garrett Crochet. And then he went Colson Montgomery, the prep shortstop after that. And last year he went prep pitcher and Noah Schultz. So he's kind of like Thanos here. If he takes a college bat, he's done all four demographics. And then we'll see on uh, how they fare within the White Sox farm system. But at this moment, it's those three players that I've circled. Braden Taylor, Yohandi Morales, and Chase Davis. If Kyle Teal of Virginia, the catcher, drops all the way to 15 for the White Sox, I think they could go in that direction. And I can already hear the podcast listeners, what about pitching? Watch Chase Dollander of Tennessee and where he goes in the first round. I'm hearing that he could drop out of the top 10, but Hurston Waldrip, the starting pitcher of the righty from the University of Florida. He pitched game two of the College World Series. I think he had a good outing against LSU. He could still be on the board for the White Sox, and I would I, I would expect him to be the best available pitcher the White Sox could draft at pick 15. So, Josh, taking you back to the top of the draft, like uh, we've had a lot of these philosophical discussions with guests and you know, me and Mike going back and forth just on the, the Paul Skeens thing, right? Because it this, yeah. this was not expected. We talked a lot about Chase Dollander in the preseason, and then Paul Skeens did what he did. There's a lot of organizations that would very much prefer to just take the college bat up at the top. But if you're Pittsburgh or you're one of these teams, and look, I was one of those people, Josh. I would always say, take the position player. But the more that you watch Skeens, I mean, he's going to be like one of the best pitching prospects in baseball immediately. He could pitch in the big leagues next year. I mean, if you're Pittsburgh, how else are you going to acquire a guy like this other than taking him at one right now? That's where I just kind of feel like, you know, this might shift over the next 10 days. And if he's the number one pick, it's not going to surprise me at all. Yeah, I'm with you, James. I think in our next mock, when I cut, when I look at it from my perspective, if I were Pittsburgh, I'd take Paul Skeens. And to your point, I think when you look at past number one overall draft picks for pitchers, yeah, there's Casey buys and Casey is dealing with a lot of injuries, but you have recent examples of Steven Strasburg working out very well. Uh, David price working out very well. So I, I think uh, there, I know there are people are scared about the demographic and maybe, you know, for those that haven't watched a lot of Paul Skeeds, unless they watched him in the postseason, like, Oh, he's going to need Tommy John. I watched a lot of Paul Skeens this year at LSU because obviously I'm watching the number of draft eligible prospects that LSU team had as they went on to win the national championship this year. The dude reminds me, I mean, we have not seen this good of a college pitcher since Steven Strasburg. And Paul Skeens in the SEC struck out 50% of the batters he faced. 50% of the batters he faced. I mean, this is a fastball that goes 99 to 102 miles per hour. When we're talking about 80 grade type of velocity paired with a 60 grade slider. 
and the endurance of this guy and just the physical shape that he's in, able to maintain that type of velocity beyond pitch 100 this year for LSU. I mean, to your point, James, Pittsburgh is never going to ha- have the opportunity to sign one of these guys at free agency. Like we're, we're talking about the potential of a guy Pittsburgh used to have, like Garrett Cole. Like that's the type of potential that Paul Skeens has. And I think when Pittsburgh is realizing now they're going to want, want to win the National League Central in the near future, they need horses. They need front-end starting pitchers. You're not going to find anyone better than Paul Skeens in the near future. And if you do pass uh, pass on him and you take Dylan Cruz, I like Dylan Cruz a lot, and I think Dylan Cruz is going to be a great major leaguer one day. But you're still going to have to answer the question, all right, along with Mitch Keller, who's helping lead this rotation? And if ownership is not going to be wanting to spend the money, and we all know, guys, on how much starting pitchers cost these days at free agency, and if you're not going to be willing to part with your top prospects at acquiring starting pitching, well, the only way you're going to be able to get it is you draft it and you develop it. I assure you it's not going to take a lot of development effort when it comes to Paul Skeens. So I think for Pittsburgh, that's the direction I would go. I would take Paul Skeens number one overall. Josh, last thing I have for you, and look, I always lean on you early in the process here for the college guys because I think you pay a lot more attention to some of the underclassmen once they're, you know, once the high school guys go to college. We're going to talk about this a lot, I think, the rest of the year after this draft. Like just looking at the 2024 draft where the White Sox might have a very high pick. It was just an awesome college World Series. Just give me who are a couple of names for the top of next year's class, I guess, to potentially get excited about if we have to force ourselves to get excited about something with a bad White Sox team. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the big names are Vance Honeycutt from North Carolina. Toolsy guy. Toolsy, but I think he really needs to work on his strikeout rate. Uh, just, I'm not, that's what scares me with him. Uh, Jack Coglione from Florida. Cags, he led the nation this year in home runs. And Florida uses him as a two-way player, as a starter, because he could hit 97 miles per hour. I don't think his future is a pitcher because I just don't think he's got great control. But man, if you put that type of arm in right field with the type of power bat that he has, uh, he could be a really impact player. Uh, on the pitching side, you got Brody Brecht from Iowa. Kind of like the same story as Paul Skeens. This is a guy who hits triple digits with his fastball. We'll see on how he does it his third year at Iowa. Uh, as far as developing, Thatcher Hurd, we saw him in the College World Series for LSU. He's going to replace Paul Skeens as their top-end starter. Someone to watch, Tommy White, Tommy Tanks, even though I think he's probably a first-base DH type moving forward as a professional. He's going to be one of the top power bats in that class. And the biggest question mark that I have, because he's entered the transfer portal, is Chase Burns. I really like Chase Burns and his stuff. And I think he could be an excellent starting pitcher moving forward professionally. But something happened at Tennessee in which has he put himself into the transfer portal and we don't know what school that he's going to latch on to. And I'm really curious at where Chase Burns could go. But he's definitely on my early watch list as well as someone to, if the White Sox are going to have a, a top 10 pick, like right now there are some quality college players but this next year could be a really strong college pitching class. 
that gets me excited. I want to see pitching. I love watching young pitching develop. Uh, it's probably my favorite thing about being a baseball observer is, is watching pitching. So I'm a, I'm a fan of that. Josh, really appreciate the insight. Your perspective makes me think so differently about so many other topics. So thanks for the insight. Thanks for your time and enjoy the festivities while you're out celebrating marriage. Yeah, absolutely, guys. Thank you so much. And for the listeners, enjoy the MLB draft day. They're going to try to make it bigger and better moving forward with every year. So I really appreciate everyone that took the time to read the draft profiles at futuresocks.com and on socksmachine.com leaning up to the draft. It's going to be a fun time. That's Josh Nelson. We have our draft show July 9th. Can't wait for you to join us. It'll be myself and James Fox together where you can uh, it's, it'll, it's, we're watching the draft. It's live. You can comment, you, you interact with us. We'll have guests lined up as well. So it's going to be a good time. Also want to throw in this mention, hang out with us on future Sox night, August 26th at the ballpark purchase tickets on our Twitter. You'll be able to get the patio section and a seat in right field. And we'll hang out and watch the A's and white Sox at that point and wallow in our misery, but it'll be fun. Right? Day at the ballpark. It'll be fun with like-minded white Sox folks. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your support. Appreciate everybody following us at FutureSocksAndSocksMachine.com. For Josh Nelson and James Fox, my name is Mike Rankin. We release episodes every Tuesday of the Future Socks podcast. Also catch the Future Socks Roundup every weekend. We'll talk to you all next week.